Father, we just come before you in the name of Yeshua, asking for your Ruach to come upon our hearts and minds. Open us up that we may understand that we just won't be puffed up with knowledge, but we always have hearts to want to walk in obedience to the things you show us. And that by your spirit, you will give understanding and revelation and empowerment by your grace to walk in the things that you've called us to. May we not fall short in any way, Lord, but that we would yield to your Holy Spirit understanding. In Yeshua's name, amen. Well, we made it through the chapter six of the book of Hebrews, and today we're hoping to touch chapter seven. Before I get into chapter seven, um, I, I just want to talk a, a little bit, just a little bit, because I, I, could, I could go into great depth into this, and I, I don't think that's what I want to do. Um, and that's the issue, again, I mentioned it, I touched on it. I mean, really just kind of skipped on it last week, just kind of touched the whole issue that I know is a very controversial issue in the body of Messiah, and it has been so for over 1,800 years. And that's the issue of, of uh, eternal security, um, assurance of salvation. The body of Messiah has different views and opinions. And even within the different camps, there are variations of opinions. And what I'm saying about that, there's the whole camp that's once saved, always saved. And then there's the, the camp that says, no, 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 you, you're not guaranteed. You could, you could either walk away or you could fall away. And, and out of that, you know, you have, these, you have extremes in that and everything in between in the body of Messiah. And sometimes the groups that are at the extreme, they won't fellowship with one another on any level. They, they condemn the other group. They're, you're not really saved because you don't believe in one state. You're always saved. And, and you're questioning God's ability to keep people in salvation. And, and you're saying that the salvation in Yeshua is not a guaranteed thing. And, and that's wrong and it's awful. And the other side, you're saying, no, you're allowing people to live in all kind of sin and wickedness and, and doing all kind of things and saying they're saved even though they're living a life that's immoral and against the things of God. And you're ignoring verses like, Lord, 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 didn't I do great things in your name? And, and Yeshua's response is, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, you lawless ones. I never knew you. And so you have this very interesting tension between, and I can assure you for 1,800 years, then the body of Messiah, there have been debates on this. And even today, there are um, people on, on both sides, extremes. And, and when I say that, I don't mean that they're not qualified. I mean, these are people of integrity who believe the word of God on both sides. I know people on both sides, and I know that many of them to be very much full of integrity, but it, it becomes a, an area of, of, of friction in the body of Messiah. So I want to tell a quick story that goes way, way back to when I was a student at George Washington University. And that wasn't when the dinosaurs were roaming the earth. <laughs> it was not that far back. But it was some time back. And we had an outreach group for our campus ministry that 
was trying to reach anybody and everybody on campus, but we were particular about how we were going. When we found out at the time that I went to school, the, the popula population of Jewish people went to school was very high. Large number of Jewish people went to George Washington University. And so our fellowship group, which actually was founded by a Jewish believer in Yeshua, we, we began to, you know, what can we do to reach the Jewish community on campus? And we did lots of things. We, we just, you know, that's just what we did. And we tried to reach every group. I mean, it wasn't just the Jewish groups on campus, all groups. But one thing we did, among the many things we did, is that we would bring in these bands, more contemporary sounding Christian groups to give free concerts right on the campus. They had areas on the campus that you could plug up and have stage and seating. And, and, and here's something, whether Jewish or not Jewish, college people in that time, you know, we, we're going back to early 80s, uh, rock and roll was big and, and, and a lot of people, whether Jewish or not Jewish, young people of that age loved a good rock band. Didn't matter. They didn't have to say they were Jewish, whatever. They played, they had guitars going, and people would come and listen all over the campus. They would come. And so we said, hey, we would find these Christian groups who used to be, some of them had been, uh, you know, they were just into rock music and alternative living and all that, and they got saved. They gave their lives to the Lord, and they're like, you know, these are long-haired, and, you know, they lots of tattoos and everything, and, and they got saved, and they're going like, well, what do we do now? You know, we're, we're getting rid of the drugs, we're getting rid of all the stuff we did, and now we want to live for Jesus, and what do we do? Well, we know how to play rock music, so... They just took all their songs and, you know, and they played the same music. You know, and it'd be words like, your life's going to come to the end one day. You're going to have to stand before the Lord and come and come to the one who saved you. you know? And so we bring these guys in and they would do their rock music. And people would come. The students would gather. You know, and we might have big containers of juice or something. We couldn't do beer. That would have gotten us in a lot of trouble. <laughs> but uh, people would come and they were drinking cookies and snacks. You know, hey, college students, cookies and tater chips are the most wonderful thing in the world that they could have for you when you're a college student. You're like, oh, you know, snacks. This is great. And so people would be milling around like, hey, that's good stuff. And then every once in a while, what we did, our fellowship group, we would mingle through the crowd. And of course, as people at some point stop listening to the music and hear the words, there might be a line to say, come to the anchor, you Jesus. And like, a lot of people would stop and go, huh? What's Jesus got to do with this? And we would be there. Do you understand what they're saying? And we would engage people and get into conversations and we would move it to share the gospel and find out who they are. Well, there was this one guy on campus whose name was Max. Big, tall, red-headed Jewish guy. And he did not like us at all in any way, or any form. You know, he, he was against, especially when he found out that some of us had already connected to Messianic Judaism. Boy, was he angry. And anyway, he, he hated me with a passion. Oh, did he hate me. 
man, he would see me out and I have a table set up with tracks and literature. He'd just come over and cuss me out and yell at me and walk away. You know, he's always angry. Well, he's at, he liked rock music. Big tall guy, couldn't miss him. He was above everybody. You can see him just kind of bouncing around to the music. And then he realized, you see his face go, <gasps> I've been tricked. I thought I was just coming to rock music and they're talking about Jesus. And he started, you can see him angry. He's looking around and he spotted me. He made his way to the crowd. He came in, he started yelling at me and I'm like, Max, calm down, what's up, man? He's like, he's like, look. And he said something. This is what he said. Are you telling me that my bubby who died in the Holocaust, is burning in hell right now? How would you answer that question? How would you respond to it? Now, I, had, I could take him some deep theological stuff of dealing with what happens to the person, the pygmy or whoever that's never heard. I can take him there. I could bore him with it. I could get so theological with it. He'd be like, hey, this is kind of deep and heavy. But at the moment, I saw his hurt. I saw his pain. And I said, this is not the time for that. And I just looked at him. I said, Matt, all I can tell you is God loves you and he loves your bubby. And I have no idea the state of your bubby, except that I know that God's a righteous judge. And that whatever his judgment at the end will be right and no one will be able to question it. Though some might want to, and I'm including even believers. Some of us are going to be really surprised by the people who enter into life. And going to be surprised that some people don't get in, that you thought should be in, and they're not going to be in. Because God knows hearts, situations. He knows, and I always tell people, he calmed down a little bit. And all I can say to him is like, you know, my heart goes out to you. I feel your pain. And I'm not, not going to get into it with you. It's tough to say that God loves you. And I hope you find peace. I know there can be peace in Yeshua. I know you don't see how. But that's all I can say to you at this point. There's a whole lot more I could say. That's all he needed to hear. The issue of what happens to the person who's never heard and the issue of eternal security, once you save or you always say, are very linked together. And a lot of people don't realize that, but they are. And they're in an area that when you take the totality of Scripture, that you have to realize on an individual identifying a person, you can't say. You don't know what happens in the last seconds of someone's death. His bubby in the Holocaust, how do we know that they didn't know Corey Tamboon? How do we know that Corey Tamboon, who was preaching in the prisons and warned many people to Messiah, including the Jewish people who were there, how do we know she was not one? He wouldn't know, I wouldn't know. But how do we know? His bubby was sitting at the feet of Corey Tamboon, 
what, what, what do you say? You, you're at peace about being in here? What, what, do you, what, what do you mean? How can God allow this? And Corey's pouring out her love and her passion. How do we know? We don't know. How do we know Yeshua didn't visit her? There are Muslims right now all over the world that Yeshua's been appearing to. Really? God's why he never, he's not appearing to my aunt yet. I don't know why he hasn't appeared to your aunt yet. He hasn't appeared to every Muslim. He hasn't appeared to every person. For some reason, certain people, God sides, that's Yeshua. Not every apostle got Yeshua appearing to them. Paul, who was persecuting the body of Messiah, seeking to have his Jewish brethren who, who confessed Yeshua as Messiah arrested and thrown into prison, for whatever reason, Yeshua says, you know what? I'm going to make a personal visit to you. You're not going to get it just by word. Scripture says, blessed is he who believes yet has not seen. You're going to need a little seeing, Paul. And why I give you some seeing, I'm going to take your eyesight away for a while. I don't know why he chose to do Paul like that. Anything I say of why he chose that would be just my speculation. And there are plenty of books that will say, do that. They'll go off on pages. This is why Paul, it's God's choice. This thing I can say without speculation, it's God's choice. He chose Paul. He's like, I got a plan for you. And he chose him and he put him out there. So we don't know. And so when we move even from the area of what happens to the pygmy that's never heard, I, I can tell you stories that, you know, some of you know these stories that blow your mind. You read about missionaries who go to finally reach some remote group out in the, in the bush to bring the good news. And the people greet them and say, you're here, finally. What do you mean finally you're here? We've been having dreams about these white folks that are unusual because we're black folks. We've never seen white folks and we've had dreams of these white folks coming in and bringing news to us that we've been told is salvation and we should believe. And whole tribes would receive the Messiah. Why do we limit God into his love and preparation to bring people into the kingdom? Why do we think it fully sits only with us? It doesn't. God is moving and working, and he can do it through dreams, visions, revelation, send Yeshua himself right there in the midst of the people. That doesn't get us off the hook that we're told to go out and preach the gospel. And God has chosen a foolish method of preaching to get it out there. It is a foolish method because it relies upon humans and people and all the arguments people have when God could at one moment appear to everyone around over the whole earth but he chose mostly to go through preaching. And then every once in a while he steps in, he does something very unusual. That's his choice. So when we move on to the area of people embracing Yeshua. The reality is, if you take the totality of Scripture, you can find plenty of verses, especially with the coming of Yeshua, which is a game changer to everything else that had taken up to that point. When God put Yeshua on the playing field, Everything changed. Earlier, people were saying, there's a guy going to enter in the game. He's going to be a game changer when he gets here. 
He started to increase that that's going to happen. That's going to happen. He's working through his prophets saying, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And up, up until that time, we're just doing what we're doing. But then when Yeshua entered into the world, it's a game changer. God has brought his salvation to a level that he had never brought it before. Didn't mean that he didn't have salvation before. I mean, from God's perspective, he provided salvation from the foundation of the earth. Yeshua is the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the earth. God had already provided for salvation even before the first human walked. He already had it all planned out. So it's not a new thing like, oh man, look what they've done. I better come up with a salvation plan. No, no, no. I knew what they were going to do. And so I've already provided a way for salvation for them. They don't know that. But he knew it. So Yeshua comes and is a game changer. The doors to salvation have been opened broader than anything you can ever mean, even though the scripture still says narrow is the way to life. That narrow was wider than it had ever been before. The way of salvation was open. Yeshua himself talked about the fields of being ripe for the harvest. And I believe they're still ripe for the harvest. Yeah, there's, there's, there's flows, ebbs and flows and moving of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to get ahead of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to get behind the Holy Spirit. We want to be right where the Holy Spirit is moving and opening up doors and seeing things. And that's great. When you're in a place like that, man, that's an exciting place to be. Outreach and evangelism is an easy thing to do when the Holy Spirit says, this is what I'm doing. But sometimes the Holy Spirit is pulling back. It's preparation and everything. And no, it doesn't mean you still can't get out there. You still got to get out there. But boy, when you know the Holy Spirit, says, oh, this is what I'm doing. You could have labored for years trying to get somebody in your family saved. And then the Holy Spirit says, it's time. And somebody comes up, says less than anything you've ever said before. Said it the wrong way, the wrong attitude. And all of a sudden, your loved one says, I found Yeshua. And you're looking like, I've been saying that to you for the last 15 years. And now you're acting like you just heard it? So that's what you want to say sometimes. Hopefully we don't. Hopefully we just get excited and say, hallelujah, thank you, Father, for opening up their eyes. But there are tons of scriptures that guarantee, that say that if you embrace Yeshua as the Messiah, you will be saved. And that is what it says. And it's not talking about your physical healing, though that can be part of it. And it's not talking about your minimal, mental adjustment. That can be part of it. And the context of a Jewish understanding of salvation was that understanding they knew there was the world to come. And the issue was who's going to enter into that world and who's not. And they used the term saved as those who were being delivered from the enemy's camp to being brought into the kingdom of God because those in the kingdom at the end shall enter into that life when the fullness of that kingdom comes to the earth. And the scriptures are very clear over and over again that those who believe and confess Yeshua and grab on to him, that there, there's salvation for them. God changes them. It says in Acts, it says 3,000 were added to the fold that were being saved. And it uses that term over and over again, that those who are embracing Yeshua are saved. They're entering into the kingdom that is breaking into this earth. And by doing so, will continue in the kingdom until the fullness of that kingdom comes. And so, yes, round one. 
Yet at the same time, there are plenty of other scriptures, even in the apostolic writings, that give very strong warning. Things like those who endure to the end shall be saved. Those who endure to the end. Oh, you are now the saints of God, the holy ones, part of his household, if you continue in this faith. Hold it. What? If? <laughs> when did that get thrown into the closet? And that's what causes the battle between the two groups. Some in their passion to defend that God is able to keep those that he saved will we'll focus the verses, all the verses that talk about eternal security. He will lose not one. He will keep them all. He will bring you to the end. He will complete the work that's starting in you. They see those verses like this. And the other side that's concerned about the justice and holiness of God Though they know those verses exist, it's the other verses that pop out to them. If you continue to the end, God will not be mocked. You sow to the flesh from the flesh you shall reap. I warn you as I've warned you before that those who do these things shall not enter the kingdom of God, and he's not talking to people who have not embraced Yeshua. He's talking to people who are going, yes, Jesus. And he gives these strong warnings, which you have to just do a little reasoning. If Paul the apostle felt once you walked up the aisle, raised the one hand, made the confession of Jesus in your life, that that's it, then why give these warnings? Why talk to people who've confessed the Lord to warn them? Why warn them? If they've made the confession, then hey, you're good, you go, you're solid, man. And yet, if you're not careful, if you focus only on those verses, you get to a place where people begin to live in fear. Have you ever been in a community where people are born again in the morning, by noon they're unsaved, and by the evening they get saved again, and this is their entire life for the rest of their lives, and guess what? They are fearful and miserable. And what happens in those communities is a judgment develops. They begin to judge the salvation. They're always looking. Well, I heard brother so-and-so was at the movie theaters the other day. I questioned his salvation. Because we have established rules in our community Thus saith the Lord, you cannot go to the picture show. Hmm. See, I've lived in a lot of different communities in my walk with the Lord. And I've lived in some very holiness type of groups. I've been with them and I, I saw the, the extreme and I saw the hurt and the damage done to people. I saw the fear in the community. I also saw people lower the standard of God. I also saw people put on a face. How you doing, saying, oh, I'm blessed, filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm speaking in tongues. I am highly favored of the Lord. Okay, that's great. How you doing? <laughs> but they don't want anybody who wants to give you some sense that they're struggling 
Because if you're struggling, the next thing that happens in those communities, well, sister, we're really wondering if you've ever really been saved. You're on the way to hell, girl, but to the picture show. How dare you? This is what happens. And people get into fear. And so they put on a pretense of the life that they're living. Or they're walking around with so much condemnation. If you've never counseled someone that you're like running scream and tell them, Yeshua loves you. He died for you. Well, I'm not sure if I'm saved. Have you accepted him? Yeah, I believe and I accept it, but I'm not sure. You know, I'm so, so aware of my sins. There's no way he could share me. You're calling God a liar? He loves you. He gave his son for you. He says, whoever embraces him shall enter into life. How dare we even think that a person has not? See, so there's this tension in God's word. And believe me, in my early days of my walk, I was like, Lord, why? Why don't you spell out these little details? I need to get it all straightened out so I have my, my formula. Everybody wants a formula. I wanted one too. I wasn't buying into the one saved, always saved formula because I saw too many people who were living like the devil and I just could not believe that you could live so wretched in your life after embracing Jesus as your Lord and Savior and walk around and say, you were okay. I knew the scripture, Lord, Lord. I knew God says would not be mocked. Yet at the same time, I saw the other extreme where people embrace the Lord and they're loving him, but they're struggling, working out their salvation. They need help. They need encouragement. They need their faith built. And yet they were condemned that they were still unsaved and in hell. And they spend their whole life trying to merit up enough honor, enough lifestyle to say that, hey, I'm saved. And they quickly slip into works righteousness, which leads to death. So it's one of those things, as God does with so many things. He tells us what we need to know to walk the life he's called us to. But he doesn't always spell out every little detail for the person down the street. He just doesn't. And we have to be careful of spilling over of thinking we know all the answers to these things and stop preaching the plain things that he set before us. Which that whoever calls on the name of Yeshua will be saved. And that he will give you a new heart and a new spirit and he will change you and you need to hold on to that. Now here's the thing. We may not like this, but we really don't know outside of our own sense of confession what the confession is of another person. See, I am fully convinced that God has fully convinced me that in Messiah Yeshua, by embracing him, I have been saved. I am fully convinced that he will keep me that I will grow from righteousness to righteousness, from faith to faith, and he will continue to watch over me and he will keep me, he will change me, and he is doing that, and I've seen a lifetime of that evidence coming forth, and it continues to do so. Not because I'm such a great person, but because of his faithfulness. 
And I believe every believer who embraced Yeshua should have that confidence. But I can't say for you. I can go by your own confession. And I will seek to bring you into confessing what God says about your situation. I won't let you get away with saying, well, you know, I'm just an old sinner saved by grace. I'm going to sin all the time. No, that's not God, what God says. God says he gives you a new heart, new spirit, and he'll change you. And so that's what you should start believing. Many times believers are not walking in the, in the benefits of the new covenant because they don't believe what, well, some of them don't even know what the benefits are. And those who know it don't believe that it works for them, but it does. And so we encourage them to grow in faith so they can have the fullness of the blessing that, of a better covenant, the scripture says. But the reality when we take the totality of it, from the beginning, there's always been a mixed multitude. There's always been tares sold in among the wheat. And here's the thing about it. The wheat and the tares that are growing in the field both receive the same rain, which is the blessing of God. That's why in Hebrews, what we read last week in the sixth chapter, when he's getting upset and he's trying to exhort the, the, the Jewish believers who were starting to question whether or not Yeshua was the right way to go because of the persecution that was coming upon them. And so they were getting ready to abandon Yeshua and he warns them, very strong words. You've tasted of the Holy Spirit. You tasted of the, of the power of the world to come. You have experienced this interaction of the things of God. For God rains down rain on, on, on the just and the unjust of light. And if the ground brings forth thorns and thistles, what is its outcome but to be gathered up and cast in the fire after God has poured so much of his blessing to bring them to himself that he warns that if you fall away, it will be impossible to renew you, which means you were renewed. As he said, he said, renew you again, which means on some level, people have experienced the renewal. And he said, it'd be impossible to renew you again. Now, you sit there and say, well, why? That's a good question. It's like the issue of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Why can everything be forgiven but the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Again, people have written volumes on that. I haven't written my volumes, but I have my, my perspective. It's the Holy Spirit that brings the revelation of who Yeshua is. It's the Holy Spirit that convinces you of sin. It's the Holy Spirit that brings you to repentance. Without the Holy Spirit, no matter how much study you do, you cannot come to know Yeshua as the Messiah. It has to come by revelation, and it comes by the Holy Spirit. If you believe that the Holy Spirit that's bringing revelation working in your life is really Beelzebub. And therefore, you know, if Beelzebub's coming at you, uh, you would not want anything to do with Beelzebub, right? The evil one, you're like, ah. So if you believe the Holy Spirit is the evil one, how will you be saved? Because every work of the Holy Spirit to bring the revelation that Yeshua's Messiah, you're gonna reject. And so there's no way, no way you can ever be forgiven of that because you have decided that God is evil. And I think that's what he's referring to. Others have other opinions. Now, I do thank Paul, who I believe wrote Hebrews. Other people think other, somebody else did. I do thank the writer 
that after he talks about the rain coming out and the thorns and thistles, he turns to that body. He said, though I've spoken like this, I believe better things concerning you. Things accompanying salvation. I'm giving you the warning. Stop playing around with your salvation because you, you might reach that point. That point where God says, enough's enough. You, you're throwing in thistles coming forth. That's it, I'm done. I don't know where that point is, but God has a point somewhere. So he said, but I think greater things of you, accompany salvation. And then he goes on and gives the promise of God who works in us towards salvation. And so that's the healthy tension that God leaves on this topic. He doesn't want you to get so comfortable that you get sloppy with the love he's poured out in your life and think you can live your life any way you want to and that you're all right with him. Because he says, no, you're not. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never, I never knew you. The thing about it, people can experience the working of the Holy Spirit and never cross over into the place where God says, I know you. Now, we can't make that judgment. I mean, if I saw Simon the sorcerer, I'd be like, oh, yeah, he's born again. He confessed the Lord. He got water baptized. And yet Peter's like, hey, I, 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 there's some stuff going on inside of you, man. You better pray that God will grant you repentance. What? Oh, wasn't he just born again? Shouldn't he have a new heart? Shouldn't he have a new spirit? Shouldn't he be a changed person? But Peter didn't seem to think that. There are tears that get sown in with the wheat. Hopefully no one in here is a tear. Somebody says, I don't know, I might be a tear. I hope not. I hope not. Then you need to look back at Yeshua and cry out to him. And say, I need the salvation that you offered up and make the confession for him. No other agenda but Yeshua. So it's a healthy tension to keep us alert to keep us working out our salvation in fear and trembling yet with a confidence that he's able to keep us. So I decided to modify my cliche since everybody likes a cliche. So my new cliche is once saved, always saved, if you're truly saved and you endure to the end. <laughs> Ralph, is it good enough? Ralph says it's good. There you go. Once saved, always saved, if you're truly saved, and you endure to the end. So there's something, we could spend a lot on that, but I want to get into seven. So let's get there. Thank you, Father. Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, prince of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, has made, but made like the son of God, remains a priest continually. Well, where does this come from? Well, this is going back to what he did earlier. In Hebrews 4.14, as he's teaching these Jewish believers who are getting to question the way of salvation, Yeshua, and considering walk away, and he's arguing for Yeshua is greater than the prophets, Yeshua is greater than the angels, Yeshua is greater than Moses. He enters into the issue of the priesthood. In Hebrews 4.14, he introduces Yeshua as a high priest that has passed into the heavens, it says. 
Now, I believe there's a play there. Everybody knew that the high priest got to pass somewhere that nobody else got to pass into the most holy of holies. They got to pass through the veils that go from one, from the outer court where everybody could be out there and then you kind of go into the, inner, into the holy place and, and, and some people did that on a regular basis, on a daily basis as sacrifices. But the holy of holies, the dwelling place, the ark of the covenant, where the very presence of God was, which we might view as the third heaven. In Judaism, there were three levels of heaven. The first heaven was the space above the ground and up where the birds flew. The second heaven is where all the the celestial things were hung. But the third heaven that Paul talked about being caught up to in Judaism was the very presence, the throne of God. I find it interesting that as he's talking about Yeshua as the high priest, says he's passed through the heavens. He's gone through each of the veils. There's a veil between each of the rims. And he passed through one, he went to the next one, he went right into the throne room of God because that's what he did as high priest. But the author is saying something here. So you guys, you know, he knows he's talking to Jewish believers. I mean, Jewish people, he knows he's dealing with them. He knows that they understand the tabernacle, they understand the temple and the things of the temple. And he's saying, look here, this high priest that I'm telling you about, Yeshua, he wasn't going around through these little cloth things on the earth, but he passed into the very presence of God, into the heavens. This is, a, this is the spiritual reality. What you guys are dealing with on earth is a working model of what happens in the heavenlies. And the high priest on the earth is working the model down here, but don't make, make, make no mistake about it. It's just a working model. You need to see what's happening in the heavenlies that Yeshua who passed through them all. He says, Hebrews 4.15, but first of all, he tells us his high priest in the 14th verse is Yeshua, the son of God. Because of this, let us hold fast to our confession. Don't, don't, don't lose sight of that, realizing the salvation has been put before. Don't, don't let trials and tribulations and rough times and difficult times and bad things or the wrong president or the right president or whatever, don't let those things steal away from you your confession of the salvation that God has given to you. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all point tempted as we are, yet without sin. He reminds us that Yeshua as high priest, like all high priests, see high priests are taken from among men so they can identify with the people they're going to intercede for. I'm glad he didn't take another kind of being to be a high priest, but someone who understands us, understands this flesh thing that we carry around, knows what it's capable of doing what it's not capable of doing, knows of its infirmity and how weak it is when it comes to the things of the Spirit. Yeshua understood all that, yet it says without sin. Oh, that's a good thing. See, the earthly high priest understood us very well to the point that they too needed sacrifices because they were not able to overcome sin either. And so they had to make atonement for themselves first. But Yeshua comes as a high priest who had the same pressures 
of life, of temptations for sin, yet he never sinned. And when it comes time to make atonement, he doesn't need to make one for himself. He offers up himself as the righteous atonement for everyone else. And so we have a high priest who can identify with us. And that's so good. He can identify with us. He, he knows about our weaknesses, but yet he knows how to walk it out in righteousness. And because of that, because of these great two points, that he's passed through the veil into the heavenly veil, and that he is tempted in every way like we are yet without sin, so he can identify with us. Because of these two points, it says this, let us therefore go boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's saying, look, brothers, sisters, I know you're going through a rough time. I know this walk is hard. There's so much pulling on you all the time. I know there's reasons to, to want to just abandon it all and just go over to the world and fit in. I know that that temptation rises here and there. But knowing that Yeshua can identify with you and knowing that he's gone into the holy of holies and the heavenlies, you can come boldly to the throne of his grace when you start to, your leaves start to shake a little bit and you're liver starts to quiver a little bit because it's not sure of the salvation. That's the time to say, oh God, let me go to your throne of your grace. The place of his grace is where he empowers you, enables you, his free gifting to walk in his ways. And so he said, that's before you at all times. That was true then, it's true now. If you're going through a difficult time in your walk, you started to sense that doubt is coming into your life, that's the time to make an appointment. Well, you don't even have to make an appointment. You just go boldly to the throne of grace. It's not like the story with Esther waiting for the, the, the scepter to be held to you. So you went, no, God's like, I'm here for you. I remember when I was a little kid, my father was superintendent of the city's school system. He had a, a back office and he had a, a first level admin person and another one in front of that. You had to go through all these admin to get to my dad. And I was in the, the they had moved the superintendent system over to a building that was right next to the elementary school. It all connected together. And I was in the elementary school. And I, after school would finish, I'd just go plopping right over to the other side. And I'll see these people, professionals, others, sitting there waiting to be invited in. And I just walk by. And the first admin first say, hi, Ruth. And I walk right by her. And the second admin, hi, Ruth. And I go in and open the door. And my dad could be in there with somebody. And he would never go, ah, get out of here. I'm busy. He go, son, how you doing? And he turned to the person, hold it. My son just came in. What's up, son? What's going on? Dad just came by to say hi. All right. He hugged me. Or something and say, yeah, here you go. That's good. Everything's okay? No problems? All right. And go back out the door. I knew at any time I could approach my father. Well, everybody else set out on the outside. And here's the question. Do you know that you can approach your father at any time? Amen. That there's a throne of grace no matter what you're going through, that you can come to the Father and say, I need to talk. I'm, I'm feeling a little beat up out there. Things are getting rough. I don't know what to do. And I, I sense 
doubt is coming up in my heart and I need more of that grace stuff that enables me. And so that's what he says here, that you can go before that throne, this high priest, and it's because of what he's done, you can go to the Father's presence. Then he continues in fifth chapter, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men and things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. Every high priest is taken from among men, so he can identify, but he's appointed by, for men for the purpose of the things of the kingdom. A high priest has a responsibility of offering up gifts and sacrifices, not simply for himself, but for the people that he represents. And because of that, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sin. And no man takes this honor to himself. But he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. You can't decide, I'm going to be high priest. And set up your own little priesthood. Get some people around you that agree with you, and we're going to appoint you the high priest. You can, you can go before us and do priestly things for the rest of us. You know, there, there was a time in Israel after the kingdom was split that they tried to do that. Establish another place of worship. God never approved of that place. He had established his worship down in Jerusalem. And even though these were his people doing that, they weren't doing it according to his order and his design. And so he's like, hmm. And we see with that northern kingdom, it was just one wicked king after another, it seems. Because they're doing their own thing. Coming up with their own way of salvation. People haven't changed much in that. Well, God, your plan sounds good, but we think we can tweak it a little bit. We can bring it up to the times. All this blood and atonement and sacrifice and repentance and all that. No, people are just not down for that. Let's get all that stuff out the way. Let, let's make it more user-friendly. We want to build a friendly community, seeker-friendly. Make people feel comfortable. Have some good music, just sit back, relax. No messages of repent. That's a negative thing. They don't want to talk about sin and repentance and all that. That's just, that's just old school. Let's tell people how great they are and they're perfect in every way and don't have to change. You can increase your numbers that way. Increase your numbers. Amen. That's what people think. So, it says, verse 4, No man takes his honor to himself, but he who called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Messiah did not glorify himself to become high priest. But it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 2.7. And likened to that Psalm 110.4, thou art priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Oh, Melchizedek. We had to go backwards to say that this, this idea in seven was introduced earlier. And he goes on to say, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, that's Yeshua walking out his priestly order, 
offering up prayers, supplications as part of the sacrifice, as part of the, the, the giftings, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. You sure experience. Came into an area of experience by the things he suffered. Though he had a right as a son to these things. By the way, through Yeshua embracing him, you become God's sons. And as far as I can tell in his word, when it comes to your faith, he wants it to be real. And he will give you opportunity in this life to experience through the trials and tribulations and suffering that you will learn obedience to the things of the kingdom that you will experience it. It's one thing to have it here in your mind. It's another thing where you got to walk it out. And he wants us to walk it out. He wants us to take that step. I can sit at home all day in my easy chair and think about evangelizing the world. I could, I could make a good picture, maybe even put it on a video game, Xbox or something, going out, saving folks, running around, draw it all up. But it don't mean anything. Until you actually go out and turn to somebody and say, hey, I'd like to tell you about the Lord. Until you do it, you're just fantasizing. When he says, go ye therefore, it doesn't mean that you have to go to India or China. Somebody might have to go. And it might be somebody here. Who knows? But you do have to go. You do have to, by obedience, bring what you believe in your head and your heart into reality. And every time you take a step by faith in those things, God will bring the reality into your life. It's like the thing I say all the time. You know where I'm going, right, Lamb? You can talk about brownies all you want to. You can read every book about brownies. You can could, could find every brownie shop. You can read other people's testimonies about how great brownies are at somebody else's place. Man, look at this site here, man. It talks about, look at the great testimonies of all these people eating these brownies. That's wonderful. But until you take one out, and bite into it. You don't know how good it is. <laughs> Scripture says, taste and see that the Lord, he is good. It is the faith obedience in walking out the things that you believe in your heart that lets you experience the reality of what he has done. And you do need to experience it in this realm. Don't be just saying, oh, in the, in the days of the sweet by and by, I'll know then the goodness of Yeshua. Now, he says today he gives you eternal life. You can experience it now, this newness of life, this change of life. Now, you don't have to wait to the sweet by and by. It says that Yeshua's called to be a priest according to order of Melchizedek. He offered up himself. He learned obedience in verse 9, Hebrews 5. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. So he's ready to talk about giving people this understanding of how Yeshua fulfills this greater call of the priesthood. But he realizes that people weren't walking out in the things they're already supposed to be walking out. So he puts on the brakes. 
He sets it aside. He goes off and he talks about foundations and, and, and warnings about, about unbelief and all these other things. And he gets that and then he comes back full circle. And that's what gets us to the seventh chapter. And he comes back to what he started to talk about. So who is this Melchizedek? He is, in Hebrew, Melchizedek, king of righteousness, who's also called the king of Salem, a king of peace. He is priest of the most high God. That's just their way of saying, there may be gods many, but there's only one true God. The pagans have all kinds of gods, but there's only one true God, one true Elohim who established the heavens and the earth. Though the word Elohim is used to refer to pagan gods, it's yeah, because they are mighty ones on a lower level. There's only one true mighty one that's above all, the most high. And this God, Melchizedek, is his priest. This is the guy that met Abraham when Abraham was returning from his slaughter of the kings, his victory over the kings. And this Melchizedek blesses Abraham, which is strange. Because Abraham is God's man. Abraham's the one that's been picked to be a father of many nations, to be father of a great nation. This is the one that when God is thinking about doing some stuff over at Lot's, where Lot was living in Solomon and Gomorrah, he's like, uh, I need to tell my friend Abraham, my friend. I, I got to talk to him, my servant friend here. Let them know what I'm about to do. And then the will allows a negotiation that Abraham's like, uh, can, I, can I speak if, if you find, you know, this many righteous? And he keeps going down 100 to, to eventually to 10. If you can find 10 righteous, will you spare the city? How many of us have it like that? To have it like that, that, you, that God's ready to bring judgment on a whole city and you're able to start and negotiate with him one-on-one. -on -one. He doesn't go to a committee. He doesn't call a council together. He comes to you directly and say, this is what I'm about to do. Maybe we need a little bit more. Maybe this is happening today. We don't know it. Maybe there are certain cities that would have come under destruction and they're not because there was a righteous one that God went to and said, what do you say? And they cried out, oh God, don't, don't destroy it. Give them mercy. I'm sorry. Because I'm a friend with you. I'll let it pass on that. Just like with um, Jonah, Nineveh. Somebody was crying out. God was ready to destroy that place. He told Jonah, go there, man. Wipe it out. Tell them tell judgments at the door. And Jonah didn't want to go because he wanted them judged so badly. But he knew the mercy of God. And he knew that if he said, repent, that they might repent. He didn't see repent as a way of judging them and sending them to hell. He saw saying repent to them as a sign of God's mercy and grace. So we got to get it right. Sometimes we're afraid to say repent to people because we think that's judging them. No, repent is God's grace and mercy. Repent. God's saying, I'm giving you a chance to not enter into my wrath. This is my mercy. This is my grace. And if he sent you with the message of repent, more than likely the Ruach HaKodesh is going to be there to touch the hearts as well. And that's what happened with Nineveh. Jonah didn't want to go there. 
And a lot of us have probably been like Jonah. We've been dealing with Nineveh all those years, all the wicked stuff they've been doing, all the immorality that was going on. We've been like, oh, man, I am so glad judgment has come up on them. Thank you, Lord, for letting me know you're going to judge them. And then he says, go and tell them, repent. Oh, God, do I really have to tell them that? Can I just sit back up on the mountain and watch it happen? See, some of you are laughing because that's what you are like, and you know it. You know it. You're like, yeah, bring that judgment. I'm tired of them folks. They're getting on my nerves. But those people repented. From the king to the smallest animal, everything had sackcloth. Fifi had sackcloth on her. Fifi's like, somehow they put sackcloth on the goldfish. Don't know how they did it, but even the goldfish, come here, c- c- let's get this little. And because of that humility, and God grants them repentance at least the life, and he spares the city. Jonah wasn't happy about it, but that's another story. But Abraham, God's man, special in every way, And yet, when Melchizedek comes along, Abraham turns around and gives him a tenth of all he has. You expect it to be the other way around. But no. Something he saw in this Melchizedek, he's like, here, I'm humbling myself for you. Yeah, I got God's call on my life. Yeah, I got the promise. I got the promise of the great nation kingdom. But you know what? I'm giving you a tenth of all I have. That's powerful. It goes on and says, Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils. And indeed those who are the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here on earth, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, pay tithes through Abraham, so to speak. He made sort of a drush out of this. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. No wonder he took a break back over in the fifth chapter. He said, I'm getting ready to get some deep stuff, some stuff that you can think about. Now, you reason this out, that even Levi, because he was in the loins of Abraham, also paid a tenth. When the Levites were supposed to be the highest priesthood of all, yet he says they too were submitted to this priesthood of this king, Melchizedek, that comes, that we don't know where he comes from. And there's some tradition, some people try to figure that out. There's a Jewish tradition that claimed that he was Shem somehow, and, and then there's some other groups that try to figure out some genealogies, but, but they don't have any scriptures to stand on for that. The scriptures say, this guy just pops in the scene. You writing a story, all of a sudden, bam, king is here. Where'd he come from? Who's his mom? Who's his dad? Where is he from? Who gave him the priesthood? 
Where's the genealogy that shows his priesthood calling? Where is that? It's not there. It's just, he's just there. Comes out of nowhere. And yet Abraham knows him. Abraham responds immediately to him. Say, Here, here's a tenth of all I have. In the body of Messiah, people have come up with all kinds of ideas. Some people say that it could be the pre-incarnate Yeshua who appeared on earth. I don't know. Some say that he is. Some say, well, no, it's just since the scripture here in Hebrew says he's made like the Son of Man. It didn't say he was the Son of Man, but he's made like the Son of Man. So if he was just the Son of Man, if he's Son of God, he's made like the Son of God, it should just say, well, he's the Son of God. No, it just says made like the Son of God. So we don't know. But here's what we do know. Abraham submitted to him. And he's the one with all the promise. So it's showing how high this priest is in his priesthood. This is what he's trying to write to the writers. He said, look, I was trying to show you. I've told you about the angels. I've told you about, about the prophets. I've told you about Moses. Now we're dealing with the priesthood, and I'm trying to let you know. I know you know that the Levites have a high position. I know you know about going in once a year into the Holy of Holies, but I'm now saying to you that there is a priesthood that's higher than the Levitical priesthood, that even Levi, the Levitical priesthood, was submitted to this priesthood in the place of honor and authority and hierarchy. Even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes to Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron. Why have this other priesthood? Why is this other priesthood introduced later? In the Psalms, I've made you a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Why, why is this being raised up? What is the purpose? And so he raises the question, if it, if, if it, brought, if it was the gold the telos, the perfection, the fullness of everything God was doing, then why raise up this other priesthood? For the priesthood being changed, oh, this is going to mess with some people. For the priesthood being changed, of necessity, there's also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe in which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Now, I'll say for another day, a topic that those say, well, oh, didn't he have a Levitical priesthood? Because Mary and, and, and people have wrestled with that. There's another area of controversy in the Bible Messiah. Wasn't Mary really a Levite? Because she was, because some scripture says that she was, that, that, that Elizabeth was her cousin and she was a Levite and Levites were only, how, how, she had to be Levite. So Yeshua had that, 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 that calling and, and and uh, I'll get into that another time because there's a lot involved in that. But the writer of Hebrews says that as far as his calling and position, it was the issue of Judah. Nothing about Levi here as far as his calling. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life, for he testifies, you are priests forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. 
For on the one hand, there is a knowing of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. This is why he stopped, because he's got to explain some things related to the Mosaic law and the covenant. Now, understand, there is a new covenant. Some people think the new covenant is simply a renewed covenant, meaning that the Mosaic covenant put back in place as it was before. If that's the case, then every one of us break it all the time. Because I don't see people offering up the appropriate sacrifices on Shabbat over in Israel. There is a new covenant. How, do we, how can't we get around with the fact that he says, I will make a new covenant of the house of Israel, lo, not like the one I made with them when I brought them out of Egypt, which they broke, even though I was a husband to them. You have to acknowledge there is a change in the covenant. There's a new covenant. It's not exactly like the Mosaic covenant. Lo, not like. The question on the table is how is it not like? And how is it the same? Well, we know it involves Torah because in the new covenant, he says, I, well, part of the new covenant is I will put my Torah inside of you, in your heart, in your mind. I will write it on your heart. So it's not void of Torah. It's inside of you. You can't kick the Torah aside. But understand that the dimensions of the Torah were contained and within a covenant just as it's contained in a covenant now, which is new, built on better promises. But there is some change, primarily things that deal with the priesthood. Because I'm not relying on the Levitical priesthood for my salvation. I am looking to the order of Melchizedek that Yeshua stands as high priest. So I was like, you know, that's the priesthood I'm attaching myself to. And as we go on in, in weeks, we'll see that there's a, a connection between the two. The shadows of the Levitical flow and move with the movement of the bodies in the reality. That's deep. <laughs> So we don't just kick it to the corner. We study it. We understand it. We let God show how it works and flows. I mean, we already know that there's an outer court, inner court, and the most holy place. Is that where we're going to stay here on earth in a physical tabernacle? Or do we realize, hold it. God is in the most holy place. God is there. Yeshua as the high priest has gone into the most holy place, put his blood upon the altar. What happened there? That's where atonement was made. And this is eternal blood. This is not earthly animals. This is eternal blood that's righteous and holy in every way and is put upon the altar for me, not on earth, but in heaven. Oh my goodness. That's something to you know, do a little dance about. Because now you know that he is able to save you to the uttermost. Because he, he's not full of sin and he doesn't die. He's forever. He lives. He lives. Earthly priests died. They didn't last forever. 
had to get a new one. And even when you got that new one, he's already got all types of infirmities. He had to offer up his own sacrifice. He's no better than you. But with Yeshua, here's one who's holy and righteous and perfect in every way. And he is the one that says, I will go for you. I will go and make intercession for you. And the scripture says he's making intercession continually. Come on, folks. You got a, a priest who's continually for the Father, before the Father, making intercession for you? Do you see the power of that? This is why I get frustrated if we walk in sin. Why are we doing that? We got a holy one that's before us, not only giving forgiveness, but imparting grace to you to walk in newness of life. See, if we in the body would get a hold of this, we will shut the mouths of the world. They wouldn't know what to say. Those people are wholly other. They're like something we've never seen before on this earth. We get hold of this, I'm telling you. We, we can't understand it, but it, those people who confess Yeshua as Lord in their lives, there's something different about them. Oh, may it be so, Lord, from our mouth to your ears. May we walk in that, Lord. No more excuses. Well, I'm out of time. I have a lot more to say. We'll just have to save it for next time. Father, we thank you. Worship team, you can return. Father, we thank you for giving us your son as the high priest of our confession that in him we have new life and we accept this change in the priesthood for we want to walk in the covenant that is better, built on better promises. We don't want to go backwards, Lord. We want to continue forward with you, letting the fullness of your grace be imparted into our lives. We pray this in Yeshua's name.